Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of VMware Cloud on AWS Unplugged. My name is Drew Nielsen. I'm the Senior Director of Workloads and Portfolio Marketing at VMware. And today I am your guest host. And we are here to talk about cloud economics. And to that end, we have Bill Roth, who's the Director of Cloud Economics, as well as Craig Stanley, who is a cloud economist at VMware. Bill, I would say welcome to your show, but this is your podcast. So, you know, I'm sitting in the other chair today. So how are you guys doing? Hey, we're doing great. And we appreciate somebody who's got the level of uh, audio quality that you have. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, I guess well, let's just get right into it. Cloud economics. The journey to the cloud is really always a cost discussion at some point. Economics, you know, is kind of how we get there. So why don't you guys give me an idea of what is cloud economics out of like a five-year-old? Let me start with the highest sort of the simplest level, and then Craig can talk about the details. Generally, a cloud economics is a really interesting kind of area because it's sort of almost like a portmanteau of bringing together two words that you wouldn't really think go together, but they do. Economics is really the study of human decision-making. And cloud economics is how do we make those decisions in the cloud? I tend to liken it to the notion of there's sort of two levels to it, and they kind of correspond to classical economics and behavioral economics. I think there's a basic cost decision that people make where they look for which option has the best utility, but is sort of which costs less. But then there's the notion that in some cases, customers have some behavioral blind spots, sort of advent of behavioral economics in the late 70s. We began to know that people, as we know, don't make perfect decisions. And so part of our economics approach is to help people understand their blind spots around things like fully understanding the switching costs or what it takes to migrate or fully kind of understand the risk. So I think that's how I would couch it initially. You know, in more practical terms, what is cloud economics? How does it really affect kind of VMware? Well, customers can ask for a cloud economics analysis and we'll literally build you the analysis that shows the relative costs and risks. And so that's how we actually put it into action. Make sense? Great sense. But Bill, you also brought up the word there, risk. And Craig and I have talked about risk a number of times. And when you typically talk about cost in cloud, it's sort of this like, oh, well, hey, it's an OpEx discussion. And, you know, we do this transition from CapEx and everybody kind of washes their hands. But Craig, how does risk really kind of factor into this overall model that your team has built? Yeah, well, risk is really kind of the idea of looking at the psychology of decision making. Um, pretty much every decision we make is based on our understanding, implicit or explicit, of what the risk factors and return factors are on various decisions. And essentially what we do is we take a look at what these feelings are, what these gut feel, if, if you like, around different decisions around cloud economics within you know, two different choices. Say whether we're looking at putting a, an application or a system on an on-premise environment and then looking at the probability of a likelihood and probability of different types of events that could happen different types of outages or uh, impact to the organization. And we look at the same thing compared to some other choice, in this case, via VMC on AWS, for example. So we look at these two choices, and it really allows a user to take a look at really quantifying and understanding how they feel about different types of risk and what they really believe the likelihood of potential outcomes to be. So essentially, doing some additional work on this in the future and taking a look at the concept of chance. 
And the more I think about it, I start thinking that chance is not really a real thing. Chance is kind of a, a synonym or a placeholder for lack of information. So if I looked at the idea of flipping a coin, if I had perfect information, I knew how much the coin weighed. I knew what starting position was. I knew the angular velocity of the flip. I knew how far it was going to go up and down before it landed. I could probably predict how the coin would land every single time. There's no chance there because I've got complete information. But chance involves dealing with situations where you don't have complete information. And that's where risk analysis comes in to try to put some guardrails around what this unknown information is. And that's what we look at and how we apply that to making cloud decisions. Well, if we take risk and then we also take blind spots, and this is kind of something I'm going to harp on again, is we really have a lot of people, when they think about going to cloud, it's like, oh, it's CapEx to OpEx. But if you look at an overall cost model, what are some things that customers typically miss when it comes to looking at an economic story for cloud? I think the key thing that people miss is the switching cost. They look at and they say, oh, this public cloud if I buy it today for this many workloads, is less expensive. But what they miss is that there is a huge cost in migrating to a cloud that has a different API surface. So including that in the cost and showing that plus risks, as well as essentially the carrying costs of what you have to do to sort of migrate and carry the two platforms until you fully migrate is really the biggest blind spots. I think people also forget that cloud skills are hard to come by in some markets. And to Craig's point, I think that they don't fully factor in the risk of moving to the platform, project failure risk, but also risk of potentially new needs coming up where I might have to migrate back or to yet another platform. I think that's kind of some of the kind of blind spots that I see. I don't know, Craig, if you'd have anything more to, to add to that. I was thinking about another one. It, you know, when we look at some of the surveys and analyses we've done, we've done over 500 of these analyses. And really one of the biggest drivers of savings we see comes from the virtualization level. The idea of being able to do more on the newer platform with less hardware, higher density for one, because we can run a lot more VMs because we don't have to manage quite as much headroom as we did on-prem. Reason is because we can add a host at any time we need to from VMC on AWS. As soon as we reach a threshold, we can have another host brought online, usually within about 12 minutes. So the capacity is easy to grow into. So there's some savings from that and also the fact that we don't have to maintain high availability equipment. We don't have to have extra equipment sitting around for when that failure happens. That's all handled on the back end by VMC on AWS. And that's huge amount of savings from the hardware side of it. Bill, you brought up the staffing costs. And I remember a while back, we did a study where we went out and we looked at like Microsoft and Google and AWS. There were 8,000 open job recs for people with cloud skills. And you kind of got to figure if they can't find the people, how are other customers going to find the people? Exactly right. I mean, there was a London School of Economic Survey last year that looked at kind of these labor markets. And one of the main factors, which is frustrating the adoption and moving to the cloud is frankly just the lack of people. Lack of people to getting to do it, lack of people getting training up to it. And so just to, of course, to pivot to the home team, a lot of this gets removed when you've got a consistent platform on-prem and in the cloud. And so sort of removes the switching cost. It removes the ability for the kind of intense retraining and the ability to you know, learn different API services. And so I think that's one of the key 
and frustrations that I think a lot of these cloud migrations have. Bill, I would add also it greatly reduces the risk of lock-in to a particular vendor because you're able to take those workloads, move them to the cloud, or move them back on-prem, or even potentially to another cloud. So that risk is greatly reduced from being locked into any particular vendor's pricing and ecosystem. Well then, gentlemen, I guess that begs the question. I mean, is VMware Cloud on AWS more expensive than other public cloud options? Because it sounds like not, given what you've said. Let me start out by saying that in general, as, as Craig said, we've done probably 500 of these models. We have a full team of economists spanning the globe. And as we look at this, if we're intellectually honest, I think we'd say 75 to 80% of these, on when you do build the first model, do show a positive TCO across three years. Now, we make some assumptions in there, and we often modify those assumptions based on the customer. But in about 80%, 75 to 80% of the cases, we do show an advantage, largely because of what Craig said. Because we're actually taking advantage of oversubscription, we're right-sizing that workload, and we're shrinking the effort that it takes. We're shrinking the switching cost by orders of magnitude. We do tend to save money in a lot of those cases, but in a rare moment of intellectual honesty, I'll say that, look, there's about 20% of the cases where I think if it's a storage-heavy workload, I think things can go upside down. But we're honest with customers and users when we see those kinds of things. Craig, anything to add? Exactly what we've seen. In situations where it's heavy storage at this point in time, mainly because we just have the i3 instance, we do tend to see a few cases where the TCO does not work out as well. But that's really the beauty of this model. It was really designed to help our customers truly understand what the costs are, what the savings and opportunities are, and be able to take that information credibly back to their organization to help present a business case. Well, since we're on the subject of cost and expense, I think it's fair to say October of 2019, the world changed. And that's when Microsoft announced their new licensing program that affected Windows Server as well as SQL Server on other clouds besides Azure. How has that played into what we've seen on VMware Cloud on AWS? It's complicated things, I, uh, to be honest. You know, essentially for those that aren't aware, what happened is that Microsoft changed their product licensing terms and they sort of brought up a new licensing model. It used to be, prior to October 1st, if you had paid them their on-prem, their perpetual license, you could, since they had already gotten their money, you could actually move it to the cloud. However, they've added a kind of new model and gone from sort of ownership to rental. And so now, if you get a license from Microsoft to server, and let's stick with Windows Server and SQL Server, you basically move from an ownership model to a rental model. And so the current sort of structure forces VMware to sort of pass that through to the customer. In general, it will add a bit to the overall solution, but in general, we're still seeing positive TCOs out the back of that. Makes sense, Bill. All right, you know, no conversation about the cloud or cloud economics would be complete without a discussion around Kubernetes. And, you know, VMware has made some major investments in Kubernetes, especially with the acquisition of Heptio and with the announcement of Tanzu that we've seen. Where does that play, given that, no, it makes sense, Bill. Now, I think it'd be fair to say that there's no conversation that would be complete without a discussion of Kubernetes when it comes to cloud and now especially with cloud economics. With all the improvements with vSphere 7 and how we've embedded Kubernetes into the hypervisor itself, what does that mean for VMC and its economic models going forward? I think it opens up a whole new frontier of solutions for our customers. I mean, going back to the to the Microsoft licensing 
uh, changes. You know, there's the fundamental shift, or as uh, as Pat uh, likes to say, a secular shift in kind of the way uh, thinking is being done between buying licenses versus renting them. So going forward, you know, customers that are heavily into Windows Server, Windows SQL Server, that's pretty much the only game in town. So you're going to have to pay whatever the uh, whatever the piper says the song is worth. However, one of the things we're trying to get customers to start thinking about is if you are looking at taking the refactoring route, you're looking at going to containers and taking that option to rewrite the applications, then Kubernetes and Tanzu in particular is a perfect solution. Because that's integrated now into vSphere 7, it runs completely on the VMC on AWS platform. So all this is native. You can begin doing that development now. And this is, some, this is a long-term solution to helping reduce your Windows Server footprint. It is a long-term project, but you can begin now with the on-prem environment and just simply move that workload over to the cloud where you've got access to more resources and more services and be able to get there faster. So it's the fastest way to the cloud, regardless of the, uh, the application environment. Well, you brought up the word refactoring there. What is a typical app cost to refactor these days? Based on what we've seen, and there's a lot of research on the web, generally both, in fact, what's surprising to me is that the numbers agreed on by multiple of the analysts. That's Gartner, shocking. It, it's a, first time ever. <laughs> first time ever in 30 years in the industry. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> But they all come up with about, in fact, I even think, Craig, I think you've sort of backed into the same math as well, is that it's about $1,000 per VM over the course of three years. So if you're moving, uh, and that's just for a refactor, that's not for recoding, but generally we're seeing about a million bucks across three years for 1,000 VMs. If you go to cloud.vmware.com, and actually there is a cloud economics page, you'll reference a couple of the studies there. The clearest one I think is IDC, but we also, and in Craig's model, also have come up with the notion that uh, ESG sort of said that wall clock time to do the refactoring is about 27 days. 1,000 times 27 is actually 7.4 years. So there's a lot of, ma- if you're assuming you've got one person to do it. So there's a lot of data, which I think can help people understand just how complicated doing these refactorings can be. And we see this, we've, we've hired economists away from Amazon and they routinely tell us the number of years that it takes for a lot of these migrations. So it's an important factor that customers have to pay attention to. Yeah, and unless you're building in new functionality or new capability, it's essentially you're spending a lot of money on what I basically call KTLO, keeping the lights on. So all the effort and time you're spending in the rehosting or refactoring, Bill mentioned, I've heard refactoring on some apps could be in the hundreds of hours. We have one customer that said the refactoring of a single app alone would have been in the thousands and thousands of hours. So when you're looking at those costs, those all have to be factored in as well. So given that VMware Cloud on AWS is the fastest path to the cloud, what are our customers going to be doing with all the spare time on their hands? Apparently, sourdough bread. Um, <laughs> I was going to say virtual VM world, but <laughs> virtual VM world, right? VM Live, but uh, yeah, lots of uh, custom cocktails. Um, you know, I think that's kind of that's what people are doing. Yeah, I, I think actually, though, a great answer is this gives the company, like I said, keeping the lights on. It allows you to take the workload that was focused on things that are important. They have to be done, but do they really add any value to your customer, to your consumer, your your end user? If they don't really add any value, those are the kind of things we want to eliminate as much as possible. So VMware is really helping our customers eliminate the things that don't really add value and instead focus their effort, their labor, and their talents 
on driving innovation. Classic example of that is we have a customer on the East Coast who they had a team of 10 that was managing their VMware estate. And one of the if you've ever been a VMware administrator, you know, updates and upgrades for really any software can be time consuming. They were literally able to take five of those people and actually have them work on more strategic priorities because of the amount of time they saved in kind of the cloud model where the updates and upgrades are done for you. I think in one case, in a serious note, once people get beyond their sourdough bread starter, they really be able to focus on kind of up-leveling people, growing their career, as well as giving them more useful things to do in the organization. Great stuff, gentlemen. So where can our listeners go for more information on these topics? Bunch of resources that are available. The first I would send people to is if you're a technical person and you want to see just how many, what this would look like, I would look at VMC Sizer. VMware.com, which will help you understand how do you take your virtual environment today and you know what it would look like in the cloud. If you want your own TCO example, you can go to vmctco.vmware.com and there's an option to request your own TCO. And so those are ways that you can sort of get started. And as always, you can talk to your account rep. If you want something in depth and you want somebody like Craig or I who can work with you on fleshing out a total cost of ownership, we can have an economist talk to your account rep and we can have an economist assigned to you. So Craig, Bill, great information today. And Bill, thanks for letting me sit in your chair for an episode. You know what? You do it so much better than I do. So we're just (laughs) grateful to have you, man. (laughs) All right, everybody. Until next time. See ya.